Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we... remember the Ricardo. Yeah, the Ricardo line disengaging labor. And then we stopped. And then uh, desiring production machine psychic apparatuses and machines of desire. All right, so be it. That seems... That seems spot on. I think that's about right. Um, fuck it. We're going to start from there. So to kick us off so we can actually get underway at some point, uh, thanks for listening to us bumble about as we tried to figure this out. Uh, I am sharing the PDF as always. And of course, I am going to welcome you wonderfully to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are uh, almost all the way through our second reading as we are continuing with... Uh, 4.3 of Anti-Oedipus, which is the introduction to schizoanalysis. Um, The rest of this book is going to take us as long as it takes us. uh, Four, five, six, seven times of reading through each one of these sections is entirely possible because uh, we're going to be taking our time, making sure we grasp things, making sure we talk about stuff. So uh, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, don't hesitate to jump in. Before I dive in, I want to ask, are there any questions from last week, anything that sort of stuck around in your head that you want to spend a little bit of time on or talk through or questions of what's said so far rather than jumping ahead? All right. um, Well, to catch us back up very slightly, we were just getting into them discussing desire and how desire works. The discussion they had by bringing up Ricardo and Freud and the comparison there the discussion of Ricardo who disengaged labor and created labor sort of as its own quantitative element, uh, which then obviously was used by Marx and others. Freud was the one who disengaged desire, uh, allowing it to, in their minds, become an element of production itself, an element of all of that. As they say here, subjective abstract desire, like subjective abstract labor, is inseparable. Uh, Mrs. Marx, if you could mute yourself. Um, subject. Uh, subjective abstract desire, like subjective abstract labor, is inseparable from a movement of deterritorialization that discovers the interplay of machines and their agents underneath all the specific determinations that still link desire to a given person, to a given object in the framework of representation. We're now starting to talk about how we can remove that, how we can push in a different direction, how we can see how these may interact in a way that, similar to Ricardo, isn't just a man's labor, but instead the concept of labor, labor disengaged. Uh, To continue through the paragraph, again, sharing in the PDF, uh, off we go. Desiring production and machines, psychic apparatuses and machines of desire, desiring machines and the assembling of an analytic machine suited to decode them, the domain of free syntheses where everything is possible, partial connections, included disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, polyvocal flows and chains, transductive breaks, the relation of desiring machines as formations of the unconscious with the molar formations that they constitute statistically in organized crowds, and the apparatus of social and psychic repression resulting from these formations. Such is the composition of the analytic field. And this sub-representative field will continue to survive and work, even through Oedipus, even through myth and tragedy, which nevertheless mark the reconciliation of psychoanalysis with representation. The fact remains that a conflict cuts across the whole of psychoanalysis, the conflict between mythic and tragic familial representation and social and desiring production. 
For myth and tragedy are systems of symbolic representations that still refer desire to determinate exterior conditions as well as to particular objective codes, the body of the earth, the despotic body, and that in this way confound the discovery of the abstract or subjective essence. It has been remarked in this context that each time Freud brings to the fore the study of psychic apparatuses, the social and desiring machines, the mechanisms of the drives, and the institutional mechanisms, his interest in myth and tragedy tends to diminish. Well, at the same time, he denounces in Jung, then in rank, the reestablishment of an exterior representation of the essence of desire as an objective desire alienated in myth or tragedy. Big point being made about psychoanalysis here. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the rest of this book is that, I suppose. So I'm being a bit, I don't know, obvious or reductive. Um, as they've just finished talking about our previous paragraph, uh, how desire abstracted, disconnected, uh, uh, pulled apart. So we're able to actually see how it operates. Freud specifically, as we're talking about uh, desire, gives us this really interesting way to sort of talk about how desire plays as it moves through all of these machines. The psychoanalytic machine, as they're discussing it, and when they say that, they mean psychoanalysis as an operant, uh, as a thing that someone does as a machine, uh, takes in all of these elements. It plays in the transductive breaks, relations of formations. It it plays with all of these at a large scale and sort of a complete totality. And all of this gives them this sort of, uh, how to put it, psychoanalysis as this the opening of this paragraph uh, plays with, uh, covers the totality of social psychic repression resulting from the formations of desiring machines and the unconscious, the unconscious at the molecular all the way to the molar formations that they make up and constitute statistically. All of these elements fall underneath traditional psychoanalytic thinking. And as they as he moves through the paragraph, they start talking about the reality of the conflict between what they call desiring production, social production, and the myth or the tragic, uh, these large-scale representations of Oedipus as an example, but it's not simply Oedipus. It's the archetypes of Jung all the way through to Freud's kind of a lot of his uh, of elements, uh, ultimately still playing at representation. And they muse uh, that Freud uh, when he's actually really tearing into and getting at desire, at, at the desiring machines themselves, he actually moves away from myth. He becomes less interested in it and goes so far as even to condemn it in others and uh, you know, actually has explicit condemnations of the idea of these external myths despite himself pushing them. Uh, it's a bit of a critique on Freud, but a, the underlying thing they're really pushing at is that psychoanalysis does deal with desiring machines, but it does it from a very particular angle. Uh, Jack, any thoughts, any questions? Uh, anyone else have thoughts on this? I love this section. We're getting to one of my favorite lines, paragraph or two or three away, uh, but we're kind of setting up a lot of stuff that's coming in the rest of this chapter. He's uh, distinguishing between um, psychoanalysis and representation. So the representations are the are the myths and the 
he, he's not distinguishing between psychoanalysis and representation. He's distinguishing here between desiring machine, social machine creation and operation versus myths and tragedy, tragedy, which psychoanalysis utilizes. Uh, they are, uh, I think the phrase he's got very specifically here, I really like, um, Myth and tragedy are systems of symbolic representations that still refer to desire to determinate exterior conditions as well as to particular objective codes, a body of the earth, despotic body, or capital. And that confounds the discovery of the abstract or subjective essence. Uh, their work up to this point has, they've not exactly been shy. They're not fans of representation and symbology as a, as a way that it uh, it tends to be used, especially uh, in psychoanalysis. Squattery gets very deep into this. But it's anytime we start saying, oh, you need to be X, or here is what a healthy person is. Uh, you need to become Oedipalized. Your father is your boss. You're only angry at him because he's like your father. What's your relationship with your father? Changes desire from being something that is imminent, that is experienced through my imminent experience, to oh, desire needs to be formed X, Y, or Z way or do X, Y, or Z thing or is because of some external representation instead of how it actually works. Uh, myth and tragedy are systems of symbolic representations that do this. They are these exterior things to us. No one has whatever Jungian archetype you name. That's not some imminent thing you experience. It's a, it's a word, but it's a representation of this determinant element exterior to you that has a sort of meaning that you have to derive and and build and the tragic familial representation it's very much about oedipus uh again does much of the same thing where well we've been oedipalized and we've had this sort of axiomatic reality given to us by the family uh psychoanalysis is only more than happy to play in that space and sort of utilize that rather than break that down to understand actually the desiring machines that are operating properly within that. How desire works versus the representations that sort of come across. Uh, you might say a finger pointing at the moon and all psychoanalysis cares about is talking about the moon. Does that make sense, JK? Yeah. So at, at first there are these representations in the, in the myths of Oedipus and so forth. These, these stories, these, these, you know, these ancient stories and so forth. And psychoanalysis mm -hmm. um, yeah, comes, comes on and, and, and exploits these, these myths to, uh, to put them into a system of, uh, of, uh, you know, of understanding uh, the, the, the psyche, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you take a look at Jung, for example, um, Jung basically believed there's a shit ton of archetypes that are in essence, these like primal, innate symbols that we all have and we all share uh the father uh the hero the idealist uh there's a whole bunch of different roles and we we play these out to jung's mind and this is very simplified please we actually have jungian experts on the server namely ken don't listen to me on this i'm giving very top line basic stuff to try to make a point um the the way he works is that archetypes actually are the thing we're trying to become, or we utilize them or a mixture of them in order to become ourselves. Uh, we actualize based on that. Sure. Those things as representations are, however, as Deleuze would say, they're not inside of us. They're socially determinate, uh, just in the same way that 
incest can't exist in a tribe where the mother, father, child, nuclear family doesn't exist in the same way. We don't really have children in some of them. These things are socially determinate. The same would be true of what father means, what hero means, what idealist means. These things are socially constructed, which I think is hard to sort of argue with. Uh, And he would say that uh, by giving someone those and saying, oh, you need to be the father, or an easy example would be um, if I've got a four-year-old and uh, sometimes you see parents, uh, hey, be a man, you're saying to a fucking four-year-old. That that archetype, I'm now telling them what to be, but I'm not like communicating magically all the things that it means to me to be a man. I'm utilizing the representation. Now the child has that as an aim and a thing, and that thing it's trying to push desire towards and it's trying to reach because that's kind of how we work, but it doesn't doesn't operate like that. It's not an actual point where I can go, oh, this is what man is. It's this nebulous element. And so because it's this externally determinate thing, it's driving us to look at it rather than going back to the source, which is desiring machines at its base, our our innate imminent desire as things connect and disconnect and how they've connected in our world and the sensations they've generated for the collective that is Brooks, the, the mass of desiring machines that have produced me. How do they operate? How do they work? What do they do? That's the push. It's it's getting back to that and discussing social production and desiring production and not representations. Right. So Deleuze's point is that um, these, um, you know, various kinds of archetypes and myths, you know, are, um, you know, reconciled to the um, to the capitalist, um, you know, um, you know, um, you know, desiring production, right? Uh, to. Yeah. To, 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 uh, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say cap. I, th- I would say capitalist now. Yes. He would probably say that about things we're going through, but it's not that they are all aimed at capitalist. It's that they're always to particular objective codes is the sentence he used here. And the examples right. he gives is the full body of the earth, the despotic full body and the full body of capital. He doesn't say that yet. He will later. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those are the, the large scale social constructs or the, the body without organs, for lack of a better term, of social structure. But they are a full body. And these, these objective codes, as he says here, that in this way confound the discovery of the abstract or subjective essence. Uh, just as with labor, for a very long time, people didn't talk about labor as a thing. People didn't do work in a way that people talked about this. It was it was the 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 removal of it as its own thing the disengagement of labor gave us a chance to actually see how production operates because we can do it through a lens of labor deleuze would propose that we can do the same thing with desire as long as we stop looking at like oh it's not don't look at the table the table's cool let's talk about the dude who made it and how he made it and what it took and the labor that that went under there cuz that's the real lifeblood of of production that would be what he would say about the unconscious and the social consciousness as well. Right, right. So prior to capital, it was the you know, it was the despotic, a, uh, despotic, right? Despotic, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then and, the full body of the earth before exactly. that. Exactly. Right. Okay. And so these uh, these myths and these uh, you know uh, archetypes were always subordinate to those kind of um, hierarchical you know powers, right? Um, subordinate 
is a tough way to say it. I would say they're part and parcel because okay. in the same way that um, uh, let's, let's talk about the, the Brooks socius, uh, the BWO that is Brooks. Um, everyone here who's listened to me a little bit has some general opinion of what they think about me. Whatever I say when I say Brooks or when you say Brooks, you think of something, or if you're new, hello, Ms. Marcy, it's good to see you. Uh, you may have absolutely nothing uh, aside from my voice, which is great. Um, the reality sort of behind that, though, is that you've constructed this sort of large-scale representation of overall what Brooks is, and other things need to naturally sort of fit into that as you discover. Um, when we're playing at what the representation of Brooks is, versus uh, any sort of you know smaller part or whatever we may say, it's not so much that the representations are subordinate. They're actually almost capturing the large, the, the way that desire operates, but they're manufactured by that sort of uh, social production. And they talk about that. Uh, they, they hit it here, they will hit it again. As, these, as social production happens and desiring production moves through more and more complex things, these representations grow. This itself is not problematic. The problematic thing is that when we start from the place of representation, so when someone says, hey, you're going to go listen to Brooks, and you have no idea who the fuck Brooks is, but now you've been told I'm something. Now you've come to me and you're like, oh, Brooks, I've heard someone said, uh, you're like a superstar with the lose. And I'm like, that's embarrassing. Like I feel, I feel gross when I like, that's, that's, that it, it's confusing to me, but it's because that's the setup. They had the representation first and then the real reality of me ain't going to live up to whatever the fuck you've been told. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's true. That's kind of how this works. The representation is part and parcel and comes first when you're introduced to it. So when a child's born and they're born into a socius of capital, for example, it's not that representation is subordinate to the socius. They operate hand in hand, but the representation is ultimately what actually enslaves my desire through the misuse of the various uh, syntheses. Because just like production, when it's done at large and it basically exploits labor and, and misuses it for, you know, you know, let's say nuclear bombs or garbage uh, machines, or there's poop toys at Target versus building houses for the unhoused, which feels like a much better use of actual labor. The, that representation and that goal of what our society needs to be or what we ought to be doing or what I need to be building versus dealing with the labor that needs to be done directly around me is very analogous to the way desire works uh, when I'm told what I ought to be and what I ought to want versus what I get to just sort of experience and grow with and connect to. If that makes sense. Sorry, yeah. I'm rambling a bit. Yeah, I just wonder if the, if the collective unconscious, right, is, is more, uh, a little more free from this kind of, um, you know, external collectivity of the socius. Yeah, or are they also captured by the socius? Uh, I, I would... I, I have a hesitant time uh, breaking them apart. It, we refer to them separately because it makes it easier to have the discussion. But the molar and the molecular, the two regimes, as they call it in here, they're not like two big hills on the opposite side of a valley. They're two ways of looking at the exact same thing. Um, if I look at a flock of birds, I can look at it as a flock of birds, or I can look at it as many birds. 
neither is right. It's, it's, it's a way of, oh, look at all of those birds. There's 22 that are black, seven that are red. But if I say the flock of birds is turning left, that's not true of literally every bird, perhaps at any given moment. It's like, the, this is how we have to describe these things. The same is true of the socius versus the individual versus the, you know, the collective unconscious versus the singular unconscious. There isn't really any of that. It lets us have these discussions, but all of it is just part of the larger sort of, uh, you know, uh, one large collective of desiring machines that are firing off. We just have desiring production, social production, and these other things that sort of produce, uh, they have their own rules and setup and how they operate, but they kind of play in that way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to everyone? I hope, I hope it does. Jack, am I far off? Anything? Um, it's a lot of words. Uh, I guess I know. I'd say the collective unconscious, that's, I mean, that's putting it in Jungian terms, right? Right. Yeah. That's it's I'm, I'm always hesitant to use that phrasing with the loose. Right. Cause like, they're not talking about, I mean, they're not, they're not going out through Jung, right? They're not using that system. Yeah. The, the unconscious operates. It, there isn't really a, like, uh, Lacan, for example, so Lacan, or even a bit Freud, the unconscious plays like a stage, like a play that symbols are dancing around on doing all kinds of different things. Representations are interplaying, sort of mishmashing. Uh, for uh, D&G, there isn't really any of that. The unconscious is just the mass of desiring machines and how they're firing off, connecting and disconnecting. And the result of those interactions basically is emergent to making you and so the unconscious operates in a very different way. For, for uh, Jung, it is a sort of grand story or a grand dictionary of life that kind of is the collective unconscious. So it's a, they operate pretty differently in a lot of that. If anyone here is a better explainer of uh, Jung versus Deleuze, Ken did not join us today, which makes me upset, but that's okay. He's got a real life. That's uh, not all of us have one of those. I guess if, if I were to take a stab at it, it would be something of a Kantian distinction, right? For Jung, having talked with Ken, it seems clear that Jung will talk about um, like archetypal energy, if you like, maybe a kind of desire, maybe a desire. He'll talk about that happening, but that's numinous. You have you you can't deal with it as it happens. You've got to deal with the representation of it, and that's where the archetype as representation becomes critical, because that's your way of like kind of making sense of it, if you like. That's the way it almost um, it spans into the problem that Deleuze and Guattari are talking about, right? Because at that point, if you can't get at what's happening on the unconscious on its own terms, you can only get at the representations of it the unconscious starts to look like a stage for these different things to play out in their representation. Right. And, you know, I mean, Jung, I, I think his work's very interesting, but they, the, the point they're driving at is that, and they're, they're saying Freud would agree with them in some sense, right. Is that you're, you're still not getting at the unconscious on its own terms, which are the disjuncts, the conjuncts and the connections, right. That's a great way to Instead, put it. Instead, we're dealing with the representations of them. So if you if you look at it in that sense, right, it's the problem of representing um, 
in a sense, kind of representing the experienced, right? Um, to, to really simplify it, the point of losing water you're making then is if we don't want to deal with the representations as the thing themselves, right? Then we've got to find um, the conditions of experience, right? The imminent conditions. Uh, and that's the three syntheses. That's how they're going to get out the unconscious as opposed to being caught in the representation of it. I like that. Thanks, Jack. No problem. It's because I, I posted a Yoda GIF. I meditated. Fair enough. The only Star Wars character we both like. <laughs> Fair. Well, a little. Um, I see what you did there. Let's uh, move on to the next uh, very long paragraph, uh, which actually goes a pretty pretty deeply into the mythology uh, and even mentions Jung by name. Uh, I'll just burn through this. Uh, it's a lot of the same sort of over underlying point. Don't hesitate to, if you have a thing, we're in the uh, live chat. If you find the live chat, there's a thread dedicated to Anti-Oedipus. We're in there. Um, I'll do my best to make it through reasonably. How can this very complex ambivalence of psychoanalysis be explained? So several different things must be distinguished. In the first place, symbolic representation indeed grasps the essence of desire, but by referring it to large objectities, objectifies, objectities is a, a derivation from a German term, as to the specific elements that determine its objects, aims, and sources. It is in this way that myth ascribes desire to the element of the earth as a full body and to the territorial code that distributes prescriptions and prohibitions. Likewise, tragedy ascribes desire to the full body of the despot and to the corresponding imperial code. Consequently, the understanding of symbolic representations may consist in a systematic phenomenology of these elements and objectities, as in the old Hellenists or even Jung. Or else these representations may be understood by historical study that assigns them to their real and objective social conditions, as with recent Hellenists. Viewed in the latter fashion, representation implies a certain lag and expresses less a stable element than the conditioned passage from one element to another. Mythic representation does not express the element of the earth, but rather the conditions under which this element fades before the despotic element. The tragic representation does not express the despotic element, properly speaking, but the conditions under which, in 5th century Greece, for example, this element diminishes in favor of the new order of the city-state. It is obvious that neither one of these ways of treating myth or tragedy is suited to the psychoanalytic approach. The psychoanalytic method is quite different. Rather than referring symbolic representation to determinate objectities and to objective social conditions, psychoanalysis refers them to the subjective and universal essence of desire as libido. Thus, the operation of decoding in psychoanalysis can no longer signify what it signifies in the sciences of man, the discovery of the secret of such and such a code. Psychoanalysis must undo the codes so as to untain the quantitative and qualitative flows of libido that traverse dreams, fantasies, and pathological formations, as well as myth, tragedy, and the social formations. Psychoanalytic interpretation does not consist in competing with codes, adding a code to the codes already recognized. 
but in decoding in an absolute way, in eliciting something that is uncodable by virtue of its polymorphism and its polyvocity. It appears then that the interest psychoanalysis has in myth or tragedy is an essentially critical interest, since the specificity of myth, understood objectively, must melt away under the rays of the subjective libido. It is indeed the world of representation that crumbles, or tends to crumble. Uh, said very nicely. Uh, objectities is a really interesting term. Um, the form in which the thing in itself, the real, appears as an object. Uh, it's a, a German objectitat. Uh, we usually had, we last time around, we had a couple of Germans in the room who were able to yell at me, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it again and explain it, but it's a really interesting use here. Uh, and my favorite part is that they actually translate it the first time, but then don't translate it the rest of the paragraph. So um, that's okay. Little inconsistencies never hurt anyone. Um, a lot of this is kind of just carrying on from what we were talking about with the appeal that you tend to find from Guattari in pieces prior to this, uh, alongside this and after this, uh, which is not so much condemning psychoanalysis, but saying that psychoanalysis shouldn't have be doing what it's doing, that the, there's a large-scale critique of psychoanalysis needs to be rethought, and the approach needs to be rethought because it's been taken over by these elements that are doing no service to anyone. Uh, it's a pretty crisp paragraph. Uh, please, if you have questions, because um, it's a, been a while for me since I totally didn't get this. Uh, the first time around, I remember getting stuck here and a little bit later. Um, so please, if you have questions, now would be the time. Or comments also. Maybe I can uh, try and kick that off then. So as I read it, these two paragraphs, what they're basically getting at, right? is a larger theme in the book, which is, on one hand, the engagement with psychoanalysis that schizoanalysis has, right? Because in a, in a sense, it's not trying to break with psychoanalysis the same way uh, we might say that Marxian thought is trying to break with capitalism. The, the nuance of the move, especially in post-structuralism, but in this book is, right, to engage psychoanalysis to understand why it operates the way it does, right? How it functions. And then as a point of departure, right? Schizoanalysis becomes um, this new methodology. And we can see that by the, the, the distance it shares uh, from psychoanalysis, right? That difference I, I in would, relationship. Go ahead. I, I actually think it's very similar to what Marx did. Um, I would say that- Marxian Marx didn't like say fuck capitalism burn in hell. It's it's a critique of, of sitting there going, hey look, uh, look at it. as capitalism's coming in, we're learning new things about the world. Here's some stuff that here's how it works. By the way, we need to fix, and we should probably go in this direction. It wasn't even like, I mean, it, it's not super Marx to go. Yes, you know what? I'm going to stick with these handful of representations. I. He wanted to go and go, oh, we, we learned class. Here's how class has really driven things. Here's how labor really drives things. And their critique here of psychoanalysis would be similar. It's not, let's explode psychoanalysis, everyone go away, you're evil. It's, hey, here is the underlying stuff that's happening. We're learning more. Here are some extra things. And now let's go deeper. Let's 
take psychoanalysis, uh, like I always say with Deleuze, his trick is basically saying, Freud said X, oh, he just didn't go far enough. I agree with blank. He just didn't go far enough. Freud gave us libido, this amazing way of looking at the underlying abstracted desire that is flowing through people and things. He just didn't go far enough. And actual psychoanalytic approach needs to, instead of looking at these determinate objectities, uh, we need to do a little bit more and and discuss this sort of subjective libido. It's the phrase they have, uh, uh, rather than referring symbolic representation to determinate objectives and to objective social conditions, uh, psychoanalysis refers them to subjective and universal essence of desire as libido. This this is the right direction, and we need to continue that. That's I I think it's the same thing as Marx's critique of capital. That's just me though. Maybe, maybe. I have a weird reading of Das Capital. It's fine. That's why I'm getting at it with with Marxian, right? There's a a move. If you want to use the stronger word in Marx's thought to basically write the idea is that socialism is the break the final rupture with capitalism, right? Not a deterritorialization, but something new that's just, right, we can measure it with a fissure, you know? And more or less, that's that's the idea. I'm not, I'm not trying to get too deep into the nuances of Marxian thought there, but I think that's more or less the modernist move, right? But the move here with psychoanalysis, like you're saying, is that re-engagement with it, so as to, because I think this is part of the problem for anti-psychiatry, right? And this is part of the, the a debate going on in France at this time, right? Which is that on one hand, you can, there's a move, particularly in Marxian circles, to try and break with something by justification of this new thing that will replace it. But then that gets into the issue, like you see in Foucault and Chomsky's debate, right? Well, you, you say you're going for this higher justice and all that thing. But look at what happened in Russia. They appealed to the proletariat, proletariat representations, and yet nonetheless, what new subjectivity came? Bourgeois subjectivity. The very thing they, they said they had eliminated. Right? That basic problem is what's kind of being um, addressed here, because the, the move with schizoanalysis is to do something completely different by engaging psychoanalysis directly but creating schizoanalysis in a sense as an alternative, but more directly in departure of psychoanalysis, as opposed to just trying to supplant psychoanalysis with itself. Right from that perspective, if you look at these two paragraphs, so then why does psychoanalysis do what it does? Right, And that's very important if we want to avoid um, recreating the very thing we're trying to, to change, right? So as to just basically, um, you know, make make a kind of subterfuge change, one that's just not very good, is how much has changed, right? The move they're getting at is this point that psychoanalysis with myth, it's not creating new myths per se, right? It's not creating new codes. They're saying it's decoding, which is where you can start to access capital associates, right? Because what they're talking about is a schizophrenic function of um, of psychoanalysis. And the interesting thing is, right, if you kind of go back to the Kantian thing, part of the way they do it is, is, is basically a representation in place of the thing itself, right? But in doing so, it's a, it's a, 
it's a connective move, right? Because they're changing the signifiers and they're changing the signifieds and the disjunctive, right? It's a, the line in here I really, really like is uh, along those lines, mythic representation does not express the element of the earth, but rather the conditions under which this element fades before the despotic element. It's a great line. And uh, the tragic representation does not express the despotic element, properly speaking, but the condition under which this element diminishes in favor of a new order of the city-state. The these myths and how they play at each other um, as the socii sort of play into the one to the next to the next. Uh, maybe uh, here it seems like they're saying, you know what, I'm going to go back, JK, something you asked about subver they're subservient to the socius. Seems to be implying actually there is some level of that. I shouldn't have said no, um, that there is a, a bit of a nuance to that, that these myths fade before the despotic element they before the next one as they move it's a really so i probably shouldn't have said no i should probably be careful about that that's a really uh, now i got me thinking god damn it jk it's it's the diagram with that arrow it's the progressive deterioration, yeah. right because yep. you're seeing the decoding of the signifier and the earth the signified and the despotic or to say it more simply you're seeing the decoding the decoding, deterritorialization, de however you like, of the first and second syntheses. What capital brings is the use of the conjunct, right? The third synthesis into that mix. But that's the decoding process, right? That is, you know, that's what's under fire here through psychoanalysis. In that sense, it's actually kind of interesting because in a way it's destroying the representations. But at the same time, it's destroying them in such a way that they gain expression at the same you know, It's an interesting, not so much contradiction, but um, it's, it's interesting that these two things go together that way. Very much. Um, I do want to phrase, uh, just say a conversation we're having. Uh, I just want to quote Jean-Claire and my response because I think all of it goes together. I love the wording. Uh, the unconscious is bigger than space in the depths of the ocean, but hasn't been mapped. It's unmappable. But at least with a map, one can use something to navigate it. Um, and my response, I think it's not far off from what you're talking about, too, because I'm trying to just kind of continue his poetry, their, their poetry. We can map it by laying out spaces and naming areas and calling them calm or wild or whatever. Or we can map currents, know how they flow, and this will help us understand the entire system and find out where best to be. The, the nature of mapping is uh, not that that's going to be a thing that they're going to get into in ATP or other stuff. Um, Boskard, here be dragons. Is it, yes, there's a, there's a lot of interesting shit to be had there. Mapping as a concept, especially for the unconscious. Uh, love it. Uh, any other questions? Any other thoughts? Any other things here before I move to the next slightly shorter, thank God, paragraph? I actually think the next one's more dense, which is a problem, but so be it. All right. It follows that, in the second place, the link between psychoanalysis and capitalism is no less profound than that between political economy and capitalism. This discovery of the decoded and deterritorialized flows is the same as that which takes place for political economy and in social production. 
in the form of subjective abstract labor and for psychoanalysis and in desiring production, in the form of subjective abstract libido. As Marx says, in capitalism, the essence becomes subjective. The activity of production in general and abstract labor becomes something real from which all the preceding social formations can be reinterpreted from the point of view of a generalized decoding or a generalized process of deterritorialization. Quote, <clears throat> the simplest abstraction, then, which modern economics places at the head of its discussions and which expresses an immeasurably ancient relation valid in all forms of society, nevertheless achieves practical truth as an abstraction only as a category of the most modern society. End quote. This is also the case for desire as abstract libido and as subjective essence. Not that a simple parallelism should be drawn between capitalist social production and desiring production. God damn it, I did that earlier. Or between the flows of money capital and the shit flows of desire. The relationship is much closer. Desiring machines are in social machines and nowhere else, so that the conjunction of the decoded flows in the capitalist machine tends to liberate the free figures of a universal subjective libido. In short, the discovery of an activity of production in general and without distinction, as it appears in capitalism, is the identical discovery of both political economy and psychoanalysis beyond the determinate systems of representation. I'm actually going to take a second and think through that. Please go for it. And so, see, that's the line we should give, the, you know, the people who kind of cr criticize the book for like, you know, is it really political? Is how, you know, what can we actually do with this? You know, I think that is one of the the most important moves they make here, right? I mean, not only their their reading of Marx, right, but this move that cause a lot of people will say, right, why read Antiedipus? It's just about psychoanalysis. But what they're getting at is that. No, it's about political economy and psychoanalysis. They go hand in hand, right? Like you were saying earlier, there's a part and parcel relation between capital associates and psychoanalysis. And we just saw that in the, um, in the, in the, the aspect of what psychoanalysis does. It is a machine for decoding, for deterritorializing. In that sense, right, you, you kind of have to care about both of them. You can't just say, well, it's, it's all economics. Right. And it made sense to me, too, because like when we talk about like marketing and everything today, right, that's one thing we're talking about is psychographics. You know, Freud's, Brutz, I know you know this one, but as a point of interest for some of the other guys, you know, this was one of the big developments for Freud's, I think it was his nephew, when the, the cigarette company approached him about creating a new way of selling cigarettes, getting people interested. And um, there was this march that happened, I think, in France. And uh, Freud's nephew, which is called him uh, Nephew Freud to make it easier. Or, or we can call him human piece of trash. <laughs> well, but th and this does become the move in marketing, right? Because you're, you're right, it gets into some serious issues, but it's also, you've got to, respect the brilliance of it because he gets that desire to to come up with a marketing move he has um, a group of feminists approach this march and almost seeming to 
here's the representation part, almost seeming to represent women's rights. They all light cigarettes. Yep. And this becomes the big move is that people see that. And on one hand, there's the representation, kind of like you were saying earlier with Brutz's, um, you know, Brutz the representation versus like Brutz the actual guy who's doing all this stuff, you know, what you hear about him versus, to, versus what's going on. Uh, but that becomes the big move then is the cigarettes spike in sales from women, not only because of the representation, but because of the way desire plays into that, bypassing the ego, going straight to the id. In to be very specific, to be very specific, uh, when he did this, he called them and he got people to start calling cigarettes torches of freedom. He got it's women right. to call them that. Uh, genuinely just yeah. a human piece of garbage. Uh, he ended up doing shit. I have the Wikipedia up, just reading it. He worked for the United Fruit Company in the 1950s, working with the CIA orchestrated overthrow of the Guatemalan government as well. He's a just amazing pile of human shit. Um, and Adam Curtis, I, I love Adam Curtis and fuck his flaws. He does some great work. The documentary on this, the father of spin is horrifying. Um, uh, Oh. And, and look at this. See how political economy and the psyche going hand in hand right here. Yep. Right? Desire being so intimately bound up in that that he's able to make these moves. It's a condition for him to do this. Because what did he do? He create well, what he was involved in, what this does, because it's not just him who engineered it, right? It creates a whole investment, decoding cigarettes, right? And allowing for the recoding recoding of cigarettes in this fashion as torches of liberty as women's rights and that this is the big play this is capitalism as relative limit yep. this is that uh, he did a, schizophrenic element he did a dixie cup ad campaign it's worth reading through the entire thing because it's kind of amazing his dixie cup ad campaign to just quote was designed to convince consumers that only disposable cups were sanitary by linking the imagery of an overflowing club with subliminal images of vaginas and venereal disease so that's a thing. Uh, oh, so yeah, uh, Dixie cups. There you go. It's, it's like her name agreed in reverse, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but it, it is again, the thing he understood and a lot, a lot of people understand without saying it, that the lose is getting at is that political and social and you know, your personal like drives and desires kind of all the same sort of thing we're talking about um the social machines are desiring machines uh that's what they are that's just it that's that's the construction of things well it's a gross it's a really gross thing to remember that guy's i almost hate to bring it up but it, it makes it makes the very point they're making here that you can't just parcel out uh, psych- psychoanalysis in their view. And this is part of the reason why it is extremely political and relevant to political economy. Yeah. Um, the, the whole thing is incredible. It's worth reading through all of it, honestly. Well, the Ditsy Cups one is new to me, so I'm, I'm going to look forward to exploring that. It's actually really, it's harsh. It's, it's actually uh, kind of that weird old-timey thing, but also like still unsettling today. It's like something that Tim and Eric would go, oh, that's a little bit far. 
that's unsettling. I don't think we can do that. What you got to do is you got to take that marketing and the new marketing for kids and just put them side by side, right? <laughs> See how much has changed. Uh, the uh, the mentality about that, if you haven't seen the film, Thank You for Smoking, ended up being made by a bunch of libertarian psychotics. Very good study and very much the same thing and uh, how words can be uh, twisted and mean anything. Pretty brutal. Good film. Um, back to uh, Anti-Oedipus, uh, this paragraph. Uh, any questions, comments, anything? I'll give it a minute. Happy to be awkwardly silent for a moment. Maybe one of you will be so uncomfortable you'll actually talk. All right, uh, maybe not. Yeah, uh, I oh, wanted to hello. ask you, like, uh, what's with the, like, uh, it's uh, or sujet. Uh, I can't find the, uh, a word in English. Uh, out of topic. <laughs> Uh, what's with the China trying to find water? Is that like a rumor, or is it true that they're they're, they're almost out of water, like drinking water? I haven't heard that anywhere. Hmm. Oh, it was on the news. Sorry to change topics. <laughs> hmm. Okay. <laughs> we will. We'll discuss later. Uh, the different kind of flows than we're talking about here, but that's that's fascinating. I thought is that. That's bad. There's so much about China. Uh, another one of those things. Dixie cups. It's one of those things that um, uh, if we're going to talk for a moment about actually how this operates, uh, we just were kind of going through that with him uh, and the Dixie cups or his presidential campaigns. He worked on multiple where he advised people. He was one of the first to kind of come up with the idea of lying to different constituencies. Tell the Irish that you're strong on Italian crime. Tell the I Italians that you hate the Irish. Like he, he outright told people this and it was like his idea, um, which I'm sure wasn't his idea, but he was like one of the first to advise this. So the joke, uh, he is the joke now. Uh, it's weird. Um, tell the Jews that you're anti-Nazi. Tell other people you hate bankers. It's like, okay, like you're straight up just, at any cost, cynically telling how to manipulate people. Thank you for the next hundred years. You ruined everything, you cocksucker. Um, hey, probably would have been ruined anyway, but still, Jesus. That's just the exclusive disjunction, right? As far as you get the racial mean. Yeah, but still, you usually can't track like garbage of the world to like a single person. Like, I, I do my best, you know, you try not to be that guy. We all fuck up. We're all not perfect, but like, when someone like after you die 40 years later can go, you know, he actually has significantly contributed to worsening the entire world. You fucked up. Um, but it, with China, you see a lot of the same thing playing towards both the social desires, political desires, all of these things that are playing into the same stuff The everyone else is insecure. We're in trouble. Let's look at someone else's problems. Oh, they're in worse situations. What do you want to be true personally? How do you feel about these things? The the ability for us to manipulate and play the PR game is absolutely yeah. expressly, expressly what uh, Bernays did. And he kind of helped build the idea of a PSYOP with the CIA. That's what he did in Guatemala, which is insane. Again, uh, try not to do multiple things that ruined the world, I guess. Um, but 
with with China, it's very much the same thing. You see it uh, all the time. It, the China derangement syndrome. You see the same thing. Uh, just to be frank, with America too. People who are so anti-America, they don't give a shit about literally anything except being anti. Same thing with China. Same thing with other stuff. There's a, there's an underlying desire manipulation that's being played at, because again, we're in the world of representations. We're in the world of playing that way instead of talking about actual desire production in general as an abstract going to, as they quote Marx here, the simplest abstraction. Modern economics places at the head of its discussions, which expresses an immeasurably ancient relation valid in all forms of society, nevertheless achieves practical truth as an abstraction only as a category of the most modern society. We're in a privileged position, just as we can't really go back in time 400 years, 1,000 years, and really have a discussion about labor, because that doesn't really work the same way under the despotic really doesn't work the same way under like a narco communist, uh, you know, full body of the earth, uh, socius, uh, go talk to a tribe about how their labor is being exploited. That, no, it doesn't work the same way, but it does, but we can't have that conversation because only from our position here, after these things have been broken apart, as these flows have been taken and we're able to see them. Now we can start looking back. And we can see, uh, as they say, as it, uh, the discovery of an activity of production in general and without distinction, with labor, with Marx, and with desire, with Freud, and desiring machines with DNG, as it appears in capitalism, is the identical discovery of both political economy and psychoanalysis beyond the determinate systems of representation. It's a poor thing about how this, this, all of this shit actually works. And it goes all the way back. And it's not a simple parallelism, just even though that's what I technically did just before. It's a, they are in social machines. Desire machines are in them. They are made up of them. Uh, and they're nowhere else. They aren't like, there aren't social machines and then over here are desiring machines doing some other shit. That's not, there's all the social machines are just filled up with them at large. On this this does get an important point too, which is like, so if we're going to do the affirmative critique thing, right? If we're going to we're going to follow schizoanalysis on that, you do have to deal with the representations, right? Because of what they do. Doesn't mean you can take them to be the thing itself and all that nonsense, but they are there. We'll move to the next paragraph. Obviously, this does not mean that the capitalist being or the being in capitalism desires to work or that he works according to his desire. But the identity of desire and labor is not a myth. It is rather the active utopia par excellence that designates the capitalist limit to be overcome through desiring production. But why precisely is desiring production situated? at the always counteracted limit of capitalism? Why, at the same time, as it discovers the subjective essence of desire and labor, a common essence inasmuch as it is the activity of production in general, is capitalism continually re-alienating this essence and without interruption in a repressive machine that divides the essence in two and maintains it divided? Abstract labor on the one hand, abstract desire on the other. 
political economy and psychoanalysis, political economy and libidinal economy. Here, we are able to appreciate the full extent to which psychoanalysis belongs to capitalism, for, as we have seen, capitalism indeed has as its limit the decoded flows of desiring production, but it never stops repelling them. <clears throat> but it never stops repelling them by binding them in an axiomatic that takes the place of codes. Capitalism is inseparable from the movement of deterritorialization, but this movement is exorcised through factitious and artificial re-territorializations. Capitalism is constructed on the ruins of the territorial and the despotic, the mythic and the tragic representation, but it reestablishes them in its own service and in another form as images of capital. And this this does get so if we go back to like the point about the, the three syntheses on that, right? Mm -hmm. Um so if we're talking about subjectivity when they're talking about like the subjective aspect of desire and that, right? They're talking about the conjunct, they're talking about intensities, they're talking about subjectivity, right? Subjectification. Um, those processes, right, that the third synthesis gives us. This is, of course, the big move with capital as becoming socius, is that it it starts to get at our subjectivities. Usually we think of like emotion, but there's a lot more going on, um, though emotion's a helpful place to begin. So, right, the move then is that with this decoding, <clears throat> so if psychoanalysis doesn't have to operate this way, right, but it does because of the condition of capital, then they move into the condition of capital. It doesn't have to operate that way either. And in fact, it frees up a lot of things that have a lot of potential, such as deterritorialization, right? The breakdowns of codes and that. You know, they joke they joke that this is uh, capitalism being unable to read, right? Because now we have the figures and the glossomatic um, semiotics made possible. And that is made possible here, right? That's kind of the positive side of capital. Um, the problem is then, why does capital associates operate this way, causing psychoanalysis to operate this way? And they, they go through this point quite a bit, right? This is again that, that relative limit of capitalism for capital and that absolute limit of the BWO, right? Because it, it, it has the potential to do a lot of interesting, positive things, right? We start to get gloss mat, it's this imminent. Um, kind of semiotics. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's not that simple, right? Because even though capitalism makes this stuff possible, there's still the problem of um, what they're calling the, fa the f factitious. Is that facetious? Nah. The artificial is it yeah. factitious? Thank you. The factitious and the artificial reterritorializations, right? And this is this is the big move, right? This is why this happens the way it does, is that as much as it decodes, it also makes a replacement, right? And that is to put an axiomatic um, in that place as a kind of conditioning of the glossmatic, right? I keep trying to figure this out through purport, and I, I haven't exactly noodled it as much as I need to, but that's kind of the move is if you step back from like the Weberian point that Right. Whenever you, you encounter those kind of cliches like be a man or a uh, penny saved is a penny earned and that, what makes that kind of thing possible 
and how does it have that kind of um, expressivity, right, in place of decoding? Because that's, I think, the move is that something like that, um, you know, that be a man saying has the potential to decode. And the, I think the point is in the second and third synthesis where you've got the D of X in relation to D of Y. That seems Agreed. to be this all possible. And just to mention real quick, factitious, uh, because a lot of people mix it up with other stuff. It specifically means uh, created out of whole cloth. Uh, artificial is a synonym to it. But if I say like specifically factitious reterritorializations, it means man-made, uh, generated, created by a person, uh, not necessarily like organically created, factitious. Uh, a, a factitious persona is if I'm putting on airs and pretending to be a, a rich, smart person, perhaps. Um, like that would be factitious. So it's a really very specific wording that they have here because to Jack's point, they're talking about sort of the, the generation of these territorializations that are made to cover up to do these things. Now, factitious is a very specific word. It, there's no way that's the original word in French, but I have a feeling, because it's a Latin derivation, I'm assuming that the original in French is probably actually factitious or some shit like that that's like spot on. It's a really, there's no way that's like a translator decided to use that randomly. I have the French version some here. I'll figure it out. That That is the move, right? Is to basically, it is. it's basically, it's not mitigating, but it's providing a kind of artificial condition for change, right? You're basically, so if we go back to like nephew Freud, if he's, if he's trying to bypass the ego to buy, to get at the ed, right? This is in a, in a, to basically control desire in a sense, to, to move desire, if you like. This is an attempt at moving change, particularly through subjectivity, right? Through the conjunct, but moving change in it nonetheless. Um, uh, sorry, I have two questions. Uh, did you say uh, factitious uh, is uh, uh, created out of uh, one single clause? It's 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 a if there's a it's a turn of phrase so it may not translate apologies it's an American idiom uh, where you say you make a thing out of whole cloth uh, it means that you've constructed it you've built it rather than actually having like the real thing it's a it's a it's a phrase uh, uh, let me see if I can find a way to translate that apologies it's a it's a weird idiom oh yeah like the the ancient uh, Carthage story where. Uh... This queen, she like um, was offered. Uh, she asked for a piece of land, and uh, <clears throat> the the seller he told her, "You can take only the size of an ox uh, skin." Hello. Um, yes, actually, I think that is kind of where that comes from. So it's 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 um, the the original sort of phrase has to do with um, and this is probably not. For this, whatever uh, the original phrasing is, is basically uh, rather than cutting something up and spending the time to do it, you make a thing out of whole cloth. You use the entire piece. You use a single one, and that's it's bullshit. It's completely fabricated. No one can make a thing out of whole cloth. Uh, for a long time, tailors, uh, leather workers would say that they made. Oh, this jacket was made out of whole cloth, like a single piece. That's not how anything works when it comes to like making cloth, because you always put 
different cuts or different pieces of cloth together. So it was a lie that people told in order to sell clothing. And so that's like the American idiom is sort of taking that. It's like, oh, it's made out of whole cloth, which is basically means it's bullshit. It's factitious. It's created. It's it's engineered by a person. The original uh, uh, Latin is uh, art, uh, art made, uh, making art, something like that. Uh, oh, it is art, art, artificial. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And um, is, uh, do you remember Gorang? Oh, of course. How can I forget? Yeah, we were like, he was trying to start a class called something, Factish Gods. Cults of the Factish Gods, Bruno Latour's wonderful piece. It's uh, He and I were trying to get that started, yes. One of my favorite books of Bruno Latour. That's different. That's a different thing. That's more of a oh. pun. That's a pun on the term uh, fetish, because Bruno Latour has a lot of, we'll say, uh, sardonic anger at people who believe facts are real um, and people who sort of treat them facts as if they were fetishes, thus the term factish. See, it's, it's not a good pun. <laughs> it's not a good pun. It's still just, it's just a pun. Oh, okay. Uh, like, uh, do you, uh, do you think he's coming back? The teacher? Like, um, the, I'm, uh, we, I haven't seen Gehring in a while, sadly. Oh, um, that's sad. Ed Gehring, uh, uh, we believe Gehring deleted uh, or was, was either banned, which is possible, um, from all of Discord or deleted his own account. Um, sadly, uh, we loved we loved Gehring. Um, but yeah, um, Ms. Marksy says, um, we're a tad past this, but as far as repression goes, geology memorials, they dig into the role of expression. Expression is not the same as representation. One connection that can be made here is the material content and representation expression are evading each other's territories. Uh, Bernays propaganda machine is a good example of this. It's a, as spot on. We, we were discussing, I think even last week, Yelmsleb specifically, which is as far as content and expression, uh, the dude, uh, and, uh, so it's a fantastic connection to make on this. Thank you, Ms. Marksy. Spot on. Love that. All right. Well, we'll continue to the next paragraph because we've got some more uh, marks, but it's a summation, a nice tight little paragraph. Uh, uh, we'll just jump through. Uh, Ms. Marksy, we're trying to figure out how to do that. We think we have an idea. We don't think, and I, I wonder if anyone will disagree with me, um, a straight reading of ATP, where like, like we're doing with Antiedipus. We go through it in order. I think it makes sense for Antiedipus. I think for ATP, it's actually a disservice, not just to the book, but to the point of point of it and to the ideas behind it. Um, so it's a, uh, uh, plus I've been part of, or well, I've joined the beginning of a handful of ATP readings and they're all garbage because it doesn't work. Uh, because unlike ATP, unlike AO, we're here. I can generally kind of tell you, here's my understanding. Here's what I think. ATP is a decidedly weirdly personal experience and doing it collectively is difficult. So we're trying to figure out a way to do it. Now, if you have ideas, let us know. We take suggestions. But uh, let me get to the next paragraph. We'll make our way through. Marx summarizes the entire matter by saying that the subjective abstract essence is discovered by capitalism only to be put in chains all over again, to be subjugated and alienated. No longer it is true in an exterior and independent element as objectivity, but in the element itself subjective of private property. Quote. 
what was previously being external to oneself, man's externalization in the thing, has merely become the act of externalizing, the process of alienating, end quote. It is, in fact, the form of private property that conditions the conjunction of the decoded flows, which is to say, their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production as the property of the capitalists is directly related to the flow of so-called free labor as the property of the workers, so that the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not at all affect this form. It is also the form of private property that constitutes the center of the factitious reterritorializations of capitalism. And finally, it is this form that produces the images filling the capitalist field of eminence, the capitalist, the worker, etc. In other terms, capitalism indeed implies the collapse of the great objective determinant representations for the benefit of production as a universal interior essence, but it does not thereby escape the world of representation. It merely performs a vast conversion of this world by attributing to it the new form of an infinite, subjective representation. And I'm going to quote Foucault at the bottom. Michel Foucault shows that the human sciences found their principle in production and were constituted on the collapse of representation, but that they immediately reestablish a new type of representation as unconscious representation. Uh, we did a, a reading of uh, The Order of Things. I highly suggest we have a channel here. You can go back and actually literally find that reading and that discussion. Uh, Zach Fischard did a wonderful reading on it. It was great. Um, any comments, questions, it's open, please. Let's, uh, this is about property, private property. This is about the change of private property as a form, not as a thing that I have. I don't have private property. It's a form that essentially other things get turned into or, or that I get to have or get control of or whatever it may be. And that's Marx's, if you haven't read it, I highly suggest uh, uh, Karl Marx, good writer, Das Kapital, pretty great book. Don't read the abridged version. Don't read the shitty translation. It takes a while. It's worth finding. Handful of good secondary texts we have in the uh, uh, uploaded docs uh, section here. Um, there's a huge amount of stuff written on, on Marx in general. There's a lot of different things, um, but uh, underlying all of this, I just want to reread just a little bit. It is, in fact, the form of private property that conditions the conjunction of the decoded flows, which is to say their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production, as the property of the capitalists, is directly related to the flow of so-called free labor as the property of the workers, so that the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not at all affect this form. This is one of the most dense sentences in the entire book to me. I'm not even sure I fully grasp it if anyone wants to try, but it, it is, uh, as I read it, there is an intuitive response I have that I feel like there's a shitload here. Um, I love that sentence. It's my favorite in the paragraph and maybe one of my favorite in this section. Um, Is he saying that uh, 
private property, that notion of concept of private property, is what uh, <clears throat> yeah, is how uh, the subject is defined, and that it has uh, it's out of uh, the, the control by the state. So it's it's defined in you know, the notion of private property, and the subject is pretty much uh, restricted to the um, to the property of um, the um, the private property of um, of labor, right? Labor and uh, these estimate monetizations. Um, I'm going to, it's a a great question. I want to read in response a little bit from Holland's take on anti-Oedipus where he talks about this Um, because I think I don't have a direct answer because it's a really good question, but I think this is around that. Abstract labor actually attains real existence under such circumstances because labor has become an interchangeable commodity on the market. Workers themselves have become expendable. The work they do no longer their own. The concrete objective determinations of workers' labor power, its transformation from exchange value to actual use value, supervenes only after it has been, as it has been purchased as a commodity and is set to work on means of production that remain external to it as the private property of capitalists. It was at this point historically, Marx reflects that, like Luther, who defined religion not in terms of institutional objects of worship, but as personal and interior religious fervor or faith, Smith and Ricardo define wealth no longer as objective property of valuable objects, but in terms of a subjective essence belonging to productive activity in general. And generally that coincided with capitalism's promotion of abstractly quantified labor time as the measure of social value. But then, just as Luther re-alienates free subjective religiosity back onto the authority of the scriptures, so do Smith and Ricardo effectively re-alienate the subjective essence of wealth right back onto private property. And of course, so does capitalism itself. Labor is subordinated to the dead hand of capital as its ultimate determination. Hence, Smith and Ricardo do not represent critical political economy in a Marxist sense, since they merely reflect the apparent objective movement of capitalist society. The play here with private property being at the center, uh, with these these elements sort of coming around all of it, is the play that they're making a push to here. It's the alienations of private property, the privatized family, the nuclear family, which they've gone over so very much, which puts us, now I'm maybe showing my cards early, puts us in the place where we're talking about private property subjected to capital, desire uh, to Oedipus in the same way, the privatized elements, the the free productive elements being sort of resubsumed underneath these things. Uh, They're about to get into a little bit more. I'm trying not to jump to the next couple paragraphs without going too far. Um, Yes, for me, the part that sits out there is the becoming concrete. Because I, I yes. do think he's right about that. Um, with the Marx's quote on that, right? Like the point is that what was external to someone, so if, if you put it in terms of society, the signified, the disjunct, is now becoming a process of externalization, right? And this is going to be the conjunct. So the move I think they're making here is to say that you might be able to put it in terms of the first paralogism, right? That there's something with that there would be a partial object as part of the assemblage, 
that then is detached seeming to represent it seems to be more or less what they're getting at here if we just look at in the first synthesis. If we take it to the conjunct, I think what they're getting at is more or less something you can see in Honestly, if I could use clothing in that, you know, like the use of t-shirts so as to create an external kind of subjectivity, right? That the, the subjectivity is dependent on, say, a t-shirt and the graphic on it so as to basically um, communicate the subjectivity that the intensity would be in that picture on there, right? And from there, one can derive... Um, clues about who this person is and what they what they could become and all of that, right? That process of externalization, I think, without going too deep into like private property and labor, is kind of what they're talking about because if you back that up into D of X, D of Y, right, it's more or less a, a question of how financing and how labor um, coordinate so that the, the way that those two things are changing um, I hate to use the word, but basically conditions the intensities that one uh, that will affect the the assemblage, right? That will be For dispersed sure. by the celibate machine. Well, and it's just to be very particular because the last bits he's been talking about Marx. He's been referring to it, but he's been talking about the ends of the Greek state and its transition to capital. He's talking about private property. All of this really is stemmed around, I think, um, uh, origin of family, private property in the state by Ingalls, uh, Marx's uh, companion, uh, whatever. But uh, Ingalls wrote an excellent piece on kind of the growth of private property and how it made its transition from one society to another. And Deleuze is referencing so much from that. It's it's almost impossible to sort of divorce it as far as I'm concerned. So it's uh, I've linked to it in the uh, chat. It's absolutely worth a read. Um, uh, but there's a lot in there specifically around private property and its switch that he's referring in this paragraph specifically. But again, to, to refer back and to talk about this sort of realienation as Holland's talking about it, um, as you know, with one hand we discover, but with the other hand, we re-territorialize, but again, it's not a real re-territorialization. It's, it's bullshit. It's axiomatizing. And that's the, the play that capitalism does. We discover new, suddenly it gets axiomatized and we kind of lose it. Um, we re-alienate these things, these bits of freedom. Uh, is that related to uh, Mark's uh, book in any way? Uh, which one? The the post you posted, it's made in 1884. I mean, I mean the, it's, Frederick Eng it's Frederick Engels. So yeah, it's, it's Mark's. Uh, Mark's is in there, I think, too. I want to say the whole thing is primarily Engels, but like fucking... The, they, I don't know. There's some people who believe, and I'm not sort of super far from that, that there's a lot of where Engels begins and Frederick, Frederick Engels begins, Marx ends. There's a, there's a lot of blur, but, uh, specifically this, I believe is mostly Engels. Um, so uh, it's more, um, it's going more towards a capitalist direction than the Marx, this text, right? Like, um, I don't know what you mean, actually. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> oh, it's okay. It, it's not an important question. I, I'll just read it. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's I, I don't, it's it's definitely not pro capital. Um uh but it's a, it is in line with the general critique. It's just specifically what Deleuze is talking about here is the move from uh again as the socii change and the flows become discovered and they get played, how do they get re-territorialized? Well, private property. Like he's like like private property. It before before uh, Ricardo, before Smith, before Marx, the discussion of what private property was or all economies were is we just had these items, we just had money. And then, you know, well, wait, there's use value and exchange value. And what about labor value? And what is labor and these these sort of things at the same time that effectively that uh, Freud was going, hey, we have all these things going on with the unconscious. What about what's actually driving them? Oh, maybe libido and desire. Uh, this This frees us, actually, we are able to abstract and become freed by this. But this real amazing move happens where immediately it, thanks to private property, it gets moved back into kind of uh, directing the flows as a fully controlled, almost enslaved uh, element. Uh, The sentence in there uh, that, again, I really, really love, uh, the form of private property that conditions the conduction of decoded flows. The, which is to say their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production as the property of the capitalist is directly related to the so, flow of so-called free labor as the property of workers. And the line there, it is also, uh, sorry, so that the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not at all affect this form. They'd, they'll get into this a great deal more, but again, this isn't far from traditional classic Marx. How, what the state's job is not to like control capital. The state's job is essentially to uh, justify it and protect it and keep it going, the system at large. The state exists to kind of keep the motor running. And right here is hinting at what's going to be coming a lot later, but this, the state's restrictions on the substance or the content of private property don't affect the form of private they don't fucking up touch private property they they touch the things around it and so private property gets to still be controlled owned and kind of unfettered and is allowed to do its awful shit as an abstraction and this other stuff gets subsumed underneath it uh because again we're talking about attributing everything to this new form of an infinite subjective representation which is a fucking great line that's ah, such a good it's a fucking great line did we have a, Our, fe- a feudal system right before that uh, uh, despotic, uh, feudal is, uh, would be part of that. Um, the, the switch from the three socii, the original being sort of a narco communist, but effectively, um, I am part of my tribe, my family, my group. I do what I need to do based on my role within it that I'm given early and is literally carved into me, uh, in some cases. And I am the, the body that is carved at some point. Uh, my family and our alliances race to a single person and we switch from being indebted to the earth, nature, Paul, you know, all of the gods, whatever we may call it, that is supposedly in charge of, you know, the rainfall and the harvests and production. At some point we make the move and we go to the despotic, which is all is due to the God, King, Godhead, queen, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then at some point, uh, uh, money is written on <laughs> like it's writing happens and the switch moves from the despotic to this symbolic thing this piece of paper that somehow is able to take all of that and have it entirely abstracted within itself 
And that infinite subjective representation is something very specific to capital. Like there was no such thing as private property as a concept before people owned stuff, sort of, if the king wanted a thing, the king got it. That was over. Like it is done. We don't really have that. We have some semblances of eminent domain and all that silliness, but like, come on, we know, hey, you know, you know, people have their stuff and the power people have power. I'm losing the listeners. What am I saying wrong people? Oh, it's Boastgird. <laughs> we'll fix your Windows 11 installation soon, Boast. Um, uh, I hope that answered your question, though, Deck. Sorry, I rambled a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like the time, the timing of uh, those events makes it look like uh, communism has led to uh, capitalism. <laughs> well, it's 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 not far from that. It's it's a matter of how production is organized. Like, again, when we talk about the socius, I was having this discussion with someone on the server yesterday. Um, we're not talking about like what we call society or an economic system. We're talking about like large scale. Uh, how do we get things made and who do we owe for that? Like uh, I have a sandwich. What made the sandwich? I mean, I made the sandwich, but who, who made the bread? Who put that together? I, I didn't. I mean, I, I can cook the bread, but then who did the flour? I don't have a farm. Like you can, you always end up having some sort of social thing that is actually the driving reason you have the stuff you have. And this is true all the way back to the tribal semi-anarcho-communist, you know, uh, the primitive, as they call it, all the way to now. So what takes credit for that? Well, back in the day, it was, uh, we, you know, you do we'd thank the gods, we thank the clouds for the rain, we thank the earth uh, for this bounty, all of that shit. Or we thank the king, we owe the king, the king did X, Y, and Z. None of this is materially true. Like the king didn't do dick. He didn't like help you set things up. He didn't put things in order. The king didn't do anything, but he got all the credit. Capital does that now. Like I'm not nuts if I say that people believe genuinely that the market is the reason we have the stuff that we have. I had the describe uh, So communism uh, is uh, somehow like uh, looked at in a negative way. It could be um, like I'd the, be hesitant. a way. Uh, a way to steal like people's uh, lands and houses and properties, right? Uh, if, if we want to talk about, so they they're pretty clear about uh, Russia in terms of like the the way that the USSR formed and that version of communism or any of the others that they're uh, as despotic as anything else. That they're paranoiac reactions uh, to them. It's kind of again doing away with representations where we say we want communism, we want this, because anytime you've ascribed or created a representation that now becomes your goal, as they talk about here, uh, you can do whatever you want. That shit's getting recapitulated. That, that's getting taken over. Like you can have fun with it. Capitalism's waiting. And so what do you do? How do you set up a society without having the representation would be how they'd put it. I think it, there's a lot of sort of random ways to sort of interpret a good deal of Deleuze here. I'm now in my own personal opinion territory rather than literally the read, uh, just to be very clear and put that giant fucking caveat and asterisk on top of this conversation. But um, 
you know, the thing that they're talking about here very specifically, and it's, it's actually very similar to what happened in Russia as well, or is happening in China, communist China <clears throat> right now. Um, but it's the idea that uh, capitalism, uh, capitalism implies the collapse of the great objective determinate representations for the benefit of production as the universal interior essence, but it does not escape the world of representation. It performs a vast conversion of this world by attributing it to a new form of infinite subjective representation. And this, this element is what they're going to be getting to. I want to read the next paragraph, which I think will help um, as we sort of uh, what we're, with what we're talking about right now. Anyone have any comments or questions? Anyone else on this uh, before I move on? It's another short paragraph coming up real fast here. Mostly about the axiomatic and a few other things. Tiernan, JK, Jane Claire, Tiernan, anyone? Am I far off? Are you disagreeing with me? Or am I pretty close? So it's tough to ignore, but I'm not doing great. Like, let me know. Feel free. I've got nothing as of now. <laughs> Excellent. Then uh, I will read. We seem to be straying from the main concern of psychoanalysis, yet never have we been so close. For here again, as we have seen previously, it is in the interiority of its movement that capitalism requires and institutes not only a social axiomatic, but an application of this axiomatic to the privatized family. Representation would never be able to ensure its own conversion without this application that furrows deep into it, cleaves it, and forces it back onto itself. Thus, subjective abstract labor, as represented in private property, has, as its correlate, <clears throat> Subjective abstract desire as represented in the privatized family. Capital D desire is important there. Psychoanalysis undertakes the analysis of the second term as political economy analyzes the first. Psychoanalysis is the technique of application for which political economy is the axiomatic. In a word, psychoanalysis disengages the second pole in the very movement of capitalism, which substitutes the infinite subjective representation for the large determinate objective representations. It is in fact essential that the limit of the decoded flows of desiring production be doubly exercised, doubly displaced, once by the position of imminent limits that capitalism does not cease to reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, and again by make, marking out of an interior limit it reduces this social reproduction to restricted familial reproduction. Uh, if we think of the fascist, well, if we think of the fascist uh, state that capitalism becomes, that begins to control, begins to keep that in line, tell us where to be, how to be, psychoanalysis is more than happy to do that for us internally and create the fascist within ourselves, uh, utilizing these large-scale mass representations uh, in order to create that moment, the private fam family, privatized person, privatized land, privatized labor, as much as possible. Great, great paragraph. Yeah, the question is, what is the alternative to this kind of privatized um, way of subjectivity and family? That's a um, great question. Um, because, you know, like the, um, 
you know, you can't fall back on this despotic, right? Because that that occurs in a, in a communist, um, you can you know, in a communist system too, right? Well, I mean, it technically uh, the pieces of the despotic. When we say despotic, we don't mean the thing in the past. We can have a Hitler. That doesn't mean it's not capital. It, capital again is not an organization of government or an economic system. It's a it's how we determine production and who takes credit for it. The despot, mm-hmm. the godhead. I don't know if we'll ever be able to go back to that. I'm not sure it's possible. Conversely, I don't think we can go back to some sort of noble savage life, uh, a la Avatar Dances with Wolves, where uh, we're able to even have the conversation we're having now and figure out how that works. Uh, the but But you can absolutely have capitalist areas that have despots in charge. Again, it's 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 not so much that setup. It's a question of how production, and that's desiring production specifically. But desiring production means social production, means labor production, means all of these things uh, is organized. Right, right. And uh, an organ being in giant capitals, organized. How do you actually say this machine connects to that? This connects to that. And as we move through it, uh, the question of what else we do, well. Uh, that's the thrust of the final bits of this book. And I think most of a thousand plateaus and I don't actually think uh, they did to me, they haven't satisfactorily answered that. And I think uh, they've spent most of their life trying. And I think other people sense that's the big question is what comes next. It seems to me that, uh, uh, you know, if you can have a capitalist uh, means of production, you know, without the, uh, you know, without the despotic, you know, Right, because the form of capitalism we have is that you have a despotic within a um, a company or a a workplace where the employer is the despot and the worker are the um, you know slaves more more or less, right? Um, So you know that's that's a problem, you know. Um, Every everything everyone does. I wouldn't even say necessarily that uh, they're any less of a slave than the workers. The beauty of capitalism as a thing is that uh, the wealthy and the powerful are as much a slave to the system, if not more so uh, than the workers uh, at, at any level. They have different pains granted, but in terms of what they need to be doing or what determines what they want, they're all doing that. Someone who sits there and uh, Jeff Bezos or uh, Gabe Newell is my favorite example of this. I use it whenever we talk about this. Gabe Newell is the creator of Valve, a uh, wonderful game development company, and Steam, which is the largest PC games platform. It's insane how much money he has. And someone asked him how it feels to have a billion dollars. And his answer was, he's not. He's like, you don't so much have a billion dollars as you are a filter for money that moves through you. And he started kind of describing this world of his day is spent basically trying not to lose all of that money and uh, trying to figure out what to do with it. His entire day is capital. And I think it's true for everyone that that's the case. Why, uh, why do you read the books that you do? Why do you do the job? Why do you watch the YouTube videos or whatever? Capital and the way that it's set up is what determines that. Again, production top to bottom is run by it as the reason, as the thing that is the alliant and the affiliative and the the way that you are set up. So when we talk about a, a worker or or any corporation, there are ethical whole bunch of things. Do not get me wrong, Jesus Christ, workers need rights. But as capital sits and looks at it, 
if we were to have worker co-ops tomorrow, like everything was just a worker co-op, would we be any less in capital? Would we not be taking advantage of the same system? And I mean, how, would the global South be in a better position if America was suddenly really hyper-democratized? Like, no, because capital kind of determines what we need to be doing next. And really, everyone's going to kind of vote for whatever capital needs to do. So how does it, like, this changes everything. And as it changes things, that setup, that representation of what ought to be done, that's that's the big deal. It's a really amazing sort of setup for us um, that just controls. Um, here, though, and they'll be getting into what I just said kind of in the next few, and they got into it big time in the third chapter, 3.10. I just finished editing and posting uh, 3.10 in our readings. The last one will be up Friday. Um, 3.10 goes over this like at, in depth, and it's kind of incredible uh, how they break down how capital operates, how it enslaves, how it, how it controls, how it somehow becomes the quasi-cause of all production, despite being absolutely nothing. Um, and how it works here, very specifically, uh, with anti-Oedipus, this entire book is a, is a rallying cry against traditional psychoanalytic theory that places a person as they talked about in chapter two, in a very particular triangle where it's, uh, you, mommy and daddy, and you as the child, this triangulation, this force of the family, the family being the privatization of all of these elements makes a subject created through axiomatics. Um, if I, how do I tell my son how to behave? How, do, how does he learn how to behave at the store? The real question, like it's a thing to think through because it's been a weird experience. We go to the store, he wants to grab everything. Why the fuck wouldn't he? He's a fucking little kid. He's going to run around. He wants to grab toys. He wants to open them. He wants to grab candy. He wants to grab food. Uh, especially though, now I can't let him do that fucking COVID, but on top of it, like it's rude as shit. This is how it feels. Welcome to it. So how do I do it? Well, I tell him he can't. I tell him he shouldn't. I tell him we don't do that. That's not what's done. I give him absolutely nothing except the axiomatic of this is how you behave because. And there's no way for me to do more than that. The other option would be what? He gets arrested. You don't arrest four-year-olds. He destroys a bunch of shit. Like, so we axiomatize, we privatize the teaching and the axiomatics of everything. And psychoanalysis is the tool that's used for that ongoing. And this is not just psychoanalysis. Now I would say they do the same sort of play through general counseling, general psychotherapy, sort of across the board, because what we want to make through all of this is we want to make a person, a proper person. And we tell them the double bind from the beginning. It's one of the earliest in the books. Uh, do you want to be Oedipalized or do you want to be lost to the world? And as someone who is neurodivergent and hasn't been normal my whole life, that's a hell of a thing to be told. And it's a thing you fight against. It feels awful. Uh, are you going to be healthy and normal? Because if you're not, we don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know. No one knows. And that's terrifying. And that double bind is where we all get. Are you going to be a well-adjusted person inside of the capitalist world? Psychoanalysis is here to make sure that you and your privatized world are going to do that. You are going to be this healthy, really good thing. And by the way, here's how you should think, and here's what you should be aiming for, and here's how you should behave. And this thing 
that is happening to you, this axiomatization of everything as we play with these these new limits, the, these are the, as they, as they finish the sentence with, these are the markings out of the interior limit that reduces social reproduction to restricted family reproduction. I hope that's a good explanation. I just, I, this stuff is uh, difficult. I've, I've spent a lot of time reading secondary sources on this shit and thinking about it, but I, 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 I adore the way that this thinks through it and how we raise our children and how we think through it because I'm going through it right now. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of shit there. It's a lot. So, so in a way, uh, capitalism and communism, they got um, amplified together at the, almost the same, uh, time, a moment in time. I, I would, I would, uh, generally, I think here we would, I would argue we're not talking about communism in a meaningful sense. When we talk about capital, we're talking about just money, commodity, money choosing production. So it's not capitalism. It's not a laissez-faire as an economic system. It's capital, specifically money that operates not as pure commodity, but money that operates as investment and growth. Uh, the way that a person can own a factory and receive profits off of that, that's capital. Nothing else matters. There's a, there's a billion forms that this can take, but that singular almost virus element um, uh, that's not uh, capitalism. We're talking about capital, the socius. So uh, in Russia, for example, or in China, I can tell you absolutely in China, they pick and choose where investment goes at a large scale. They, the Communist Party actively does this. Now, they're playing the world of capital. Sure, this may lead to some whatever, cap, you know, communist things, but they're playing with the flows of capital throughout all of this. That is their thing. Ms. Marxie, did I misuse flows of capital? I think I had someone else who who's corrected me on that. I'm not sure. I was only asking, like, uh, historically speaking, like after the publishing of uh, Marx's book, like in around 1888. Well, I think they would say that the 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 intention, uh, the road to hell being paved with good intentions, is basically the story of communism, the idea of, oh, we're going to have this stateless state, whatever, it's great, classless state, let's go. But because underneath all of it, the production was determined by capital, it didn't really matter. Underneath all of it, they had a goal and a shape and a representation that they wanted to play with. And as these large-scale flows of desire are mediated, controlled, and axiomatized, these are the things that make the capitalist socius what it is. We may call it communism. We may call it uh, social democracy. We may call it the Nordic version, whatever it may be. These are all capital. Uh, communism is a thing. I don't even know if uh, th they would meaningfully have a conversation around that. To them, their version of kind of revolution and you know the next step is a completely different play. So. Um, to them, all of it is capital, all of it's capital. And it'd be hard to disagree with after you watch what happened with Russia, China, Cuba, everyone's ultimately still playing the same space, some level of private property, some level of capital being the thing that organizes production. Oh, we need to have this factory here with this number of workers. That's determined by the, the overall flows of capital. That's not done by pure necessity. It's not done by a man on the ground going, 
oh, I'm going to build a factory here with my buddies. Like that's never how it worked, even in anywhere in communal, communist lands, which isn't a place. Uh, it's the worst Disney park you've ever been to, communist lands. Not as bad as capitalism lands, I suppose. But I hope that makes sense um, because it's one of the things, um, especially amongst a lot of uh, leftists, when they come to Deleuze, I did the same thing where it's like, so they're, they're critical of capitalists. Like they're critical of anything that's a representation. So it's more about figuring out how things work and how things produce than like, oh yeah, no, I like communism. No, I like capitalism. No, I like social democracy. It's like, eh, step back and go, what are the things that make these what they are? And capital as a system, as a socius, as a, again, quasi cause for production, as a thing that organizes production is the underlying thing. It's a shift from, uh, we don't just say it's, capitalists will have an argument over people who have uh, money and they'll go back and they'll talk about, uh, you know, 400, 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, mar- tax collectors or uh, people at market who sell goods and people who got rich. None of those things are capital. That's just money. Money and capital aren't the same thing. It's, again, uh, not a lot worth reading Marx, uh, Das Capital. Capital and money aren't the same thing. Um, they operate and they work differently. We may call them the same thing, but they're not. Um, so as you kind of dig in, it's about those elements. It's, it's tough. Well, you know, uh, in China, the um, it's a communist state, but it's uh, it they have a they have a capitalistic uh, kind of system, uh, kind of uh, semi-free market, but it's uh, almost but it's also controlled by the state at the same time. But people are, you know, have been making, uh, you know, uh, getting rich, you know, from that system and and surviving on that on that system. Yes, so but again, but again. It, this isn't even the capitalism that they're critiquing or talking about when they talk about the capitalist socius. That's just a representation of like, oh, this is kind of capitalism or this is more communism. It, underneath it, the thing that makes China and the US the same is underneath it, this thing, this the investment money that can generate other money, the excess value that is created through workers in a factory works the same in Russia in America, in China, in Cuba. There's excess money. Someone gets it. There's a ton of extra cash that's made that gets reinvested. The workers get none of that. And this excess is the place that capital lives. That's the thing that the excess uh, prior to capital was, not to dive too deep into Bataille, but the excess prior to capital was a thing that was it sort of built up over time and had to be expended in grand ways. Capital is just that fucking excess. It's kind of, I want to say magic. I think magic's not a bad way in comparison to talking about like, you used to have these huge feasts uh, for the ruling class where they'd be like, oh, there's a giant, huge harvest, the best we've ever had. Oh, we've collected more taxes. We need a way to blow it out. We're going to have a wedding for my daughter and spend all the money in the coffers. And these kinds of things were these massive release valves of the pressure that is excess. But here's capital that's able to always be whatever it needs to be to be at that edge. There is no expansion that's too fast or too much. No one's ever said, well, that business is growing too quickly. 
uh, it's not a not a sentence, uh, but they used to say uh, they'd they'd send warring parties and they'd say things like, uh, oh, "Well, actually, we we can't take all of that because we don't have enough room in our coffers. We need to find somewhere else to put money." Like it's that's excess. It's a, it's a different beast. Uh, and so when when excess itself can run and take lives, it's a completely different play. Mm. And that that's that's the thing that capital is not necessarily the the play towards capitalism versus communism. These are representational binaries that don't, I mean, they don't affect any of us. It's all bullshit anyway. Sorry for the ramble. This is a thing I've been specifically working on uh, and writing a, a paper on how capital and money are not the same thing. Um, I've been spending a lot of time on specifically this. It's a really fascinating uh play Marx made that I think uh, only a handful of people, sadly, have ever picked up. Susan DeBrunoff wrote, wrote an amazing book of Marx on money that's uh, 100% worth reading, uh, very much about this and talking through what I'm saying. Hoof. So uh, is is a capitalist uh, and a kind of capitalist economy, um, is it, um, you know, um, is it a reconciled with a, a, a democratic uh, um, uh, you know, form of government. Yeah. I mean, capital doesn't care the, the state is in service to it. As, okay. I mean, that's, that's classic Marxism, but with, with Deleuze that we've only ever had one state that doesn't really matter what the form is. The machine that makes up the state shifts and changes and plays in different ways. But if it's de democratic or if it's a single asshole or if it's a monarchy or if it's a parliamentarian system, it kind of doesn't matter because we've only ever really had one state. It's a, the chapter Urstadt, worth going back and reading uh, for sure. Because as we move forward and we think about what other forms we have, if all we do is end up with yet another state uh, or the same state, which is the case, we're playing into the same problem. And again, this is the fun part is capital as a excess thing and the Erstadt on the other side, we dress it up however we want. It can be Norway, it can be China, it can be Russia, it can be Australia, it can be the US. Go there and look at how the countries operate. None of them operate that differently. I've traveled to, to many of them. I haven't ever been anywhere that was like, well, this is like an alien planet. How does this place work? Like, oh, look, Pepsi. Like, <laughs> it's just, that's... It's it all it all works the same. It doesn't matter what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like uh, some, somewhere like Canada, or some of the uh, Norwegian countries, they have they they have a capitalist um, economy, but they're they're more uh, what the uh, the state is more like a um, you know welfare oriented or or care you know takes care of uh, the people. They really do. They do the best to hide the fact that their entire economy is based on the exploitation of the global South and the poor outside of the country. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, uh, I mean, it's gross, but like, like this is again. So why do they do that? Why, why in Norway? I, I, I have friends who are Swedish. I love Sweden. I adore Sweden as a country. I love visiting. I love the people there, but why do they allow that? Because that's how production works. They have the wood they do because they make the purchases that they do. They have the coffee they do, the oil, whatever it may be. They actually produce mostly their own oil. But like they have all this shit that they import. What determines those prices? What determines why they're buying them? 
why don't they, and they could, tomorrow shut down all of their shit and just kind of make everyone there slightly poor, stop exploitation across the board. They could do this. They actually have enough uh, in theory, enough you know, money or self-sustaining ability. They don't um, because that's just not how it works. And that's the fun of the socius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Socius sucks. <laughs> socius is bastard, man. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, we're. Seems like we're gradually. Maybe it's a. It's a normal process of uh, gradually uh, this country sliding into um, into a more of a uh, you know, or loss of a democracy, right? Well, I mean, we're in a we're in a weird place. Um, I think capitalism is built on axiomatics. Axiomatics by nature, it's the, like I mentioned, the things that, uh, you tell your children, that's essentially what an axiomatic is. It's all the stuff you don't know that, you know, um, and that you just kind of take for granted. There's a few wonderful papers. Again, search axiomatic in the, uh, uploaded docs section. It's insane. Uh, we've got a few really wonderful ones, but that setup requires a, general suspension of disbelief or a lack of knowledge that the opposite is true, a lack of direct confronting reality. Um, My father grew up in a time when he was told and as an axiomatic for America that the good succeed. Uh, Santa Claus gives presents to the good children, of course. These, These realities that he saw that actually paid off as far as he was concerned. And granted, he was a middle class white guy from middle America. He did fine. He didn't do great, but he did fine. He ended up okay. And he raised us and we're doing okay. But starting with my generation and you kids, it's a completely different beast. Uh, The imminent reality of experience breaks those axiomatics. They they don't have a connection to lived experience in the same way that uh, they do uh, conservatives. People are always like, why do Trump voters believe X, Y, or Z? And then suddenly Oh no, I, now I want you to get the COVID. My uncle got it and he died and it's awful. It's like, well, couldn't you have cared about that before? It's like, no, because they live by the axiomatic, the rules of the world that are around them, because that's how capitalism has organized our generalized subjective productivity. So as we exist and as we grow, unless we have something that directly confronts that, we'll maybe adjust that thing. But the ability for us to go significantly beyond that and actually break any of these assumed bonds or assumed things is inc- it's incredibly difficult. And you're certainly not going to know that you believe a thing. That's the nature of those, uh, unknown knowns, uh, uh, various ones that I've had to get through. Uh, my son didn't finish simple ones. My son didn't finish all of his dinner. This was like a year ago. And I went, Hey, before we have dessert, you've got to finish all of your food. And my wife looked at me and I went, why did I say that? Like, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, I don't believe that at all, but you don't know that you believe these things. You don't think about it. That's the nature of the axiomatizing capital. It's a, it's an amazing sort of conception that you start breaking apart. So to go back kids today, the world today has shown uh, the lie of a lot of it and not just kind of like a significant lie. And the lived experience of a lot of people is not the land of the free home of the brave place of opportunity. If you work hard, you get ahead, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, you don't get what you work for. Meritocracy is bullshit. Um, like all these things that 
some people are fortunate enough to believe or be taught early on aren't true. Most of us are not. Most people believe these things generally. They're, they're ax- it's a- axiomatized. Um, but the kids today are different and um, they give me hope. They give me hope. Um, as I was growing up, you could not say the word socialism or communism uh, unless you just wanted to anger people. You just couldn't. Uh, and you didn't. It was not, not done, which is silly to say now. Um, old people know what I'm talking about. Um, that's different now. Things are, things are changing. I don't think we give anyone hope. Us old people, they just, we all just need to die. That's how things change. So the worst thing that could happen to the world is people living longer. I think we'd start dying around 50 years old and uh, then the new ideas can get going for a while. That's a joke. That was just an extreme statement. That was mostly not true, kind of true a little bit. Uh, what was, um, sorry, so sorry for that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, what was uh, the, the Greek state considered? Uh, what kind of economical system did they have? Uh, oh, that's a whole thing. There's a couple of different places. Uh, Deleuze mentions that again, he's coming off of, uh, a lot of his stuff referring back to, um, uh, uh, Ingalls, uh, the piece that I, I linked to, um, the transition of the state as he's referring to it here, uh, towards the Athenian state away from the Greek state is a very interesting transitionary period. I would lean towards it being far more of the uh, the, pre- the prehistoric socius, the primitive socius, as it moved and grew towards the despotic. And I, it's kind of what he's talking about. But again, these aren't hard, fast categories. There aren't just three types of government. It's specifically three generalized forms of how production is organized at a large scale. And so when we talk about these three sort of elements, those are the um, those are the things that are sort of underlying that can take a million pieces. The the larger machine, uh, uh, how to put it? Uh, I've had an engine that I've taken out of uh, uh, old uh, Chevy and I put into a Benz. You can do this, by the way. Engines can change. You can fuck around. It's kind of fun. Doesn't mean that that car is now a Chevy. It doesn't mean that the old Chevy became a Benz. It doesn't mean that when uh, someone puts a Ninja crotch rocket, insane 2000 CC motorcycle motor in a Geo Metro, that that's a motorcycle. The engine is still just the engine, but it's different and it drives different and it plays different. So these three things are think of them more as the organizing factors, uh, the engine or the way the engine works or a part of it than the overarching representation. That's the big thing with the lose is to try to get away from representational thinking in general. So it's not so much what was the Greek Greeks before and after I would ask what point at that point, I'd ask what you mean by the Greeks at that point, I'd ask like breaking it down and going, how did the Greeks on a daily basis decide what to do and how did they desire things? That's the interesting question. And then how did the Athenians after them, was there a transitionary period? I'd argue that Americans from 
1492, uh, Columbus shows up. His reason for doing things is wholly different, wholly different, uh, despite being as disgusting as the the bastards who left America to go colonize and and take over different countries. They did kind of the same thing, bringing disease, famine, warfare, hunger, killing people, enslaving them, taking their lands, all that, all that shit. America is very good at it. Um, but the underlying thing they actually did, like why, like what's the drive? What's the desire pathways? What are the machines that they're part of that made those things happen? That's the stuff that matters. I'm reading a, on that note, I'm reading a great book called On Hitler's Mein Kampf. It's a Albrecht Korsorke. Uh, I believe it's pronounced that way. I fuck up everyone's name. It's on the poetics of national socialism. He takes Mein Kampf, which everyone laughs about being a shitty book, and he writes who it was for and why, what passages did, who he was touching when Hitler wrote X, Y, and Z. That is an interesting analysis. It, Everyone can read Mein Kampf. The context of it matters exceptionally well, but also it's just a stupid book. What did it do? How did it work? What did it play? How did it operate? These are the things that start to matter a lot more when you go beyond representational thinking and talking about actual workings of the various machines. And as you break down these elements and you have the large scale machines to the small machines to the big machines, whatever it may be, you start to break them down even further. Eventually, you get to the desiring machines. And you get to this base level where it's lived experience driving this or representation pretending that it's lived experience. Kind of the two sides of you know general living, I suppose. Um, and that's to go back to this paragraph and to try to close out because I, I probably should. We're hitting two hours pretty heavily. Um, psychoanalysis takes the lived experience, which is problematic and will drive people in various neuroses and psychopathologies and all kinds of shit. And it utilizes external objective representations to say, here is what you're actually wanting. Here's what you actually are. Here's what you're doing in order to mold us and shape us because representation becomes the chains that control desiring machines rather than the actual move we should be doing, which is discovering how desiring machines work and what a person's actually really connecting to. Not the representation of, well, of course you're unhappy. You're a rich bachelor who never got married. How sad. You're a Hallmark movie. It's like, no, he's depressed because this, that, or the other. He, as he grew up, he didn't have this. He lost this. It connected here. Oh, he does have money. Oh, he values this. Break these things down into their machines. And that's to a person we can do to a society because again they're the same they're the same things they're just collections of desiring machines i hope that answered or at least helped bookend this discussion um as you can tell these are the sections i last time the first time we read through this i could not have had a worse time i must have read through these sections 10 times finally made my way through and i've read this book since that one, not this reading, I've read it two other times, as well as secondary sources trying to figure this out. I'm not sure I'm right, but I think I'm in the right direction. And uh, I hope all of you join me as I continue that journey next week, as we continue from the middle of 304. Please join the server. Please join us in conversation. We are around. 
Uh, and I'd love to have all of you join. Thank you so much.